Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news and Hoosier law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Tyler Fenwick, Indiana Lawyer, Senior Reporter, and your host. As always, thanks for joining us. For our extended interview this week, I spoke with Libby Goodnight from the Asian Pacific American Bar Association of Indiana. You might know that May is Asian American slash Pacific Islander Heritage Month, so we talked about the organization's recent Heritage Month event and what Libby's Chinese heritage means to her, both personally and professionally. But before we get to that, I'm here in our studio with reporter Alexa Shrake and managing editor Daniel Carson to talk about this week's top legal news. Today is Wednesday, May 17th, and these are your headlines. We'll start with you, Alexa, for another update on the dispute between Attorney General Todd Rokita and Dr. Caitlin Bernard. What's the latest there? The ongoing legal battle between Indianapolis OBGYN Dr. Caitlin Bernard and Indiana Attorney General Todd Rokita continues. This time it involves administrative action with the state's medical licensing board. Bernard is set to appear before the board on May 25th. According to the Indiana Capital Chronicle, board members will weigh whether the doctor violated professional standards and how she handled the case of a 10-year-old Ohio girl for whom Bernard performed an abortion last summer. Rakita asked to push the hearing to August, but the medical licensing board denied his request. But it did grant his request to require Bernard to give another deposition. Still, the board also granted another of Bernard's motions to keep confidential any documents or written answers she submits in response to requests from the attorney general's office. The administrative action stems from the abortion Bernard performed almost one year ago on the 10-year-old girl from Ohio. Rokita claims that the doctor did not report the abuse to the state in an appropriate time frame. He also claims that she violated her patient's privacy by publicly talking to the media about the abortion. Now we'll go over to you, Daniel, for a case you've been following about a man who said he was paralyzed during arrest in 2019. What's happening there? A federal judge is allowing claims against several Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department officers and Marion County Sheriff's Office deputies to move forward in a case where a man alleged he was paralyzed during a September 2019 arrest and transport to the Marion County Jail. In one order issued May 3rd, Judge Chain Magnus Stenson of the Indiana Southern District Court partially granted and partially denied summary judgment motions filed by the defense in the case brought by Travis Shinneman. In a second order, Magnus Stenson denied Shinneman's motion for partial summary judgment, granted summary judgment to the defense on his policy claims against the sheriff's office, and denied the defense's summary judgment motion as to Shinneman's claims against sheriff's deputies. The lawsuit alleges Shinneman is paralyzed from the neck down and requires around-the-clock care after IMPD officers arrested him for disorderly conduct and public intoxication. The officers handed Shinneman over to the Marion County Sheriff's Office to be taken to jail in September 2019. Magnus Stinson ruled that it would be inappropriate to grant qualified immunity at summary judgment for IMPD officers Theodore Brink, Joshua Brown, Brian Lanieres, and Terry Smith, who Shinneman claims violated his constitutional rights when they either failed to intervene or participated in throwing him headfirst into a sheriff's van. But the judge also ruled that Shinneman failed to provide evidence that the city county council maintained a policy, practice, or custom that violated his constitutional rights in granting summary judgment to the council. Shinneman also alleged that Deputy Steve Monday violated his constitutional rights 
when he threw him into an MCSO van and gave him a, quote, rough ride, unquote, to the Marion County Jail, resulting in his permanent paralysis. He alleged that the deputies used excessive force in their handling of Shinneman and disregarded his health and safety. Magnus Stinson wrote that a reasonable juror could conclude that the video evidence showed deputies using unreasonable force in searching Shinneman and that he was completely incapable of moving his body from the neck down due to injury. She also wrote, quote, and a reasonable jury could find that the officer's use of force against Mr. Shinneman in that condition was objectively unreasonable and created an unreasonable risk to Mr. Shinneman's health and safety, unquote. An excessive force claim against Monday and state law claims against the sheriff's office were also proceeding. A settlement conference has been scheduled for June 22nd. Thanks, Daniel. I have a couple updates on cases I've been looking at, too. First, a magistrate judge in the Indiana Northern District Court ordered a new trial in a pregnancy discrimination case where a jury awarded $5.5 million to a former Franciscan Health employee. The judge ruled Franciscan is entitled to a judgment notwithstanding the verdict on the claim for punitive damages and a new trial on the claim for compensatory damages. The judge mainly focused on witness testimony in ordering a new trial and said the jury had the, quote, unpleasant task of deciding who was lying, end quote. The judge said the $5 million in punitive damages reflected a clear intent to punish a large corporation and that the damages awarded suggested the verdict was based on passion and prejudice. Plus, federal law caps the maximum amount the former employee could have received at $300,000. Second, on the state court side, state charges that included attempted murder have been dismissed against a Bloomington woman accused of stabbing an IU student of Chinese descent. But Billy Davis still faces federal hate crime charges. The stabbing happened January 11th in Bloomington, An attorney who represented Davis in the state case had said in a court motion he was seeking an insanity defense on her behalf. So now we'll go back to you, Alexa, as the Gen C representative on this podcast. I think it's appropriate you fill us in on the state's lawsuit against TikTok. In a case against the popular social media app, an Allen County judge denied the state's motion for a preliminary injunction. The Allen Superior Court stated that the state hasn't shown a likelihood of success on the merits at trial or its likelihood to prevail in its attempts to enjoin the defendants from making the complaint of representation. The lawsuit claims the app misleads its consumers about the level of inappropriate content in the app's description. It also claims the app misleads consumers about the security of their information. The court agreed with TikTok that the terms used to describe its level of inappropriate content are subjective and open to differences of opinion. The court also determined the state lacks personal jurisdiction over TikTok. In the order, the judge notes that the app is free for the public to download, so the term consumer transaction doesn't apply. The judge suggested that if the legislature wants the state's Deceptive Consumer Sales Act to apply to free apps, then it can amend the definition of consumer transaction. A hearing is set for June 6th in Allen Superior Court. And Daniel, just so you know, TikTok is the app with the moving pictures. So there's no confusion there. Yes. <laughs> okay, last thing for me. The Court of Appeals of Indiana has ruled the state's machine gun statute is not unconstitutionally vague. That affirmed a lower court ruling in a case where a man modified his semi-automatic pistol with a switch device to make it function as a fully automatic weapon. 
During a search at an apartment, Indianapolis police found a 9mm caliber Glock 19 pistol under a mattress. One of the officers noticed the gun had a switch installed. Devin York, who was at the apartment, was charged with level 5 felony possession of a machine gun. He argued that with the switch removed, the gun would fire semi-automatically and not be a machine gun under Indiana law. He also argued the law is unconstitutionally vague. The Court of Appeals disagreed, ruling state law focuses on what a gun can do, not on how it's made. Okay, Daniel, thank you for not walking off the set because I'm coming back to you again for an update on the tax court vacancy. It looks like applications are in and interviews are set. Ten Hoosier attorneys have applied for the Indiana tax court judge position following Judge Martha Blood Wentworth's announcement that she will retire later this year after 12 years on the bench. Those 10 applicants will be interviewed on May 23rd. The individuals who applied are Evan Bartell of the Indiana Professional Licensing Agency, Kevin Halloran of Quarles and Brady, Winston Lynn of the Vandenberg County Prosecutor's Office, John Lowry of the Indianapolis Office of Corporation Counsel, Lee Mandel of the Marion County Prosecutor's Office, Justin McAdam of the Indiana Office of Management and Budget, Joseph Pierman, a private practitioner from Northern Indiana, Patrick Price of the Office of Management and Budget, Jennifer Thuma of the Department of Local Government Finance, and Kimberly Wright of the Office of the Tippecanoe County Public Defender. After the interviews on May 23rd, the Indiana Judicial Nominating Commission will deliberate an executive session and publicly vote to send the three most qualified names to Governor Eric Holcomb. And Alexa, one more thing from you here, this time for an update on staff in the Indiana Northern District Court. What's new there? The U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Indiana announced that it has a new clerk of court. Chana Berta began her new role last week. Berta first joined the Northern District in 2007 as a law clerk for the late Judge Alan Sharp and has since served in several roles for the court. As clerk, she has a wide range of responsibilities and oversees a variety of services for the entire district, court, community, and public. That includes managing the court's budget, information technology, jury services, space and facilities, and overseeing the staff responsible for processing cases and assisting the public. She said, quote, I sincerely thank our bench for the unanimous support and trusting in me. I appreciate everyone for working hard every day to keep our operations running smoothly to ensure the effective administration of justice. This opportunity is a dream come true, and I won't disappoint. End quote. Thanks, Alexa. And finally, Daniel has a preview of his story he's working on for our next print issue. I'm working on a story for the May 24th Indiana lawyer that looks at House Enrolled Act 1006, creates a referral system for law enforcement to take someone in crisis to a mental health facility in a process where some people in jail could be transferred to a facility. The new legislation also specifies the circumstances under which a person can be involuntarily committed to a facility for mental health services. Representative Greg Stewart, Republican from Avon, authored the legislation. Thanks, Daniel. And you can read that in our May 24th edition. Okay, that'll do it for headlines this week. As always, if you want more legal news, theindianalawyer.com is the place to go. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear this week's extended interview. Taft. 
Today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, I'm joined here in our studio by Libby Goodnight with the Asian Pacific American Bar Association of Indiana. Libby is a board member for the association, and she's a partner at Craig DeVault. So thanks for joining me today, Libby. Thanks for having me, Tyler. So May is Asian slash Pacific American Heritage Month, and your organization just hosted a Heritage Month event. So how was that? Uh, It was phenomenal. The attendance was great, uh, and we were very pleased to have a really a nationally known figure in Dr. Karen Korematsu, who is the daughter of Fred Korematsu. Uh, and especially for lawyers, uh, we often learn of the Korematsu v. United States Supreme Court case in law school, and that is an important case about the uh, affirming of the conviction of Mr. Korematsu when he refused to go to the Japanese-American internment camps. And so it was great to have her here in our community uh, speaking about the work that her foundation does and the legacy of her father and also sharing the film. And then they came for us. And big picture, I guess, having an event like that, what is what is the significance of being able to bring everybody together and, and do something like that? Well, I think it is a celebration of our our roots and our heritage, uh, but it's also uh, an important time to speak on issues related to diversity. Uh, I think that's evident in the fact that we had a number of organizations co-sponsor. It wasn't just an, uh, an event that was sponsored by us, uh, although we were certainly spearheading uh, bringing Dr. Korematsu here to Indianapolis. Uh, but it's just an opportunity to, to talk about lessons learned from that particular point in history, uh, the, the showing of the film, but then also talking about diversity in general. And in that film you mentioned, you're talking about, and then they came for us, correct? Yes. Uh, and that title is in reference to uh, an actually a famous poem that was recited in the film. And uh, it, the poem kind of goes, well, they came for the communists and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a communist. They came for the socialists. I didn't speak out because I wasn't a socialist. They came for the trade unionists. I didn't speak out because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. And so that famous poem um, and the reference or the, or the nod in the title is really just about, you know, history unfortunately repeats itself, and these kinds of things can happen to one marginalized community and uh, and to another. Uh, and so it's important to remember those lessons. What was it like to watch that and and see? that point in history kind of unfold, even though I think so many people are at least vaguely familiar with, with that period in history. But but to have uh, a documentary like that played out right in front of you, what, what was that like? Yeah, it, you know, certainly you, you read about it in, in papers and you read about it in law school, but it's a, an entirely different thing to see images on the big screen particularly of the Japanese-American families who were going through that. 
uh, I found the film very interesting because I didn't realize that such famous photographers were actually on scene to take photographs of what was happening. Um, for example, Dorothy Lange, who is a very famous photographer who uh, photographed images during the Great Depression. Uh, Ansel Adams was actually on site. We all know Ansel Adams from his famous landscape photographs, but he was uh, in the camps taking pictures of families. And they did an incredible job of capturing and really humanizing what was happening to the Japanese-American families during that time. And as a mom, the pictures of the kids and babies uh, particularly tugged at my heartstrings. Yeah. And on a more personal level, then, I, I know uh, the maternal side of your family is from China and your mother immigrated to the U.S. from Hong Kong. And I'm, I'm wondering, what does that history and that identity mean to you? Well, it means a, a great deal. Uh, my Chinese heritage has obviously shaped who I am. You know, when you're a young kid, sometimes it's a little more, you have moments of, of self-doubt and um, uh, insecurities because, you know, maybe your mom is the only one who's Chinese in your classroom or people ask questions about, you know, what your middle name is. My middle name is Yin and nobody else had a name like that. And so what kind of language is that and where where did that come from? But uh, it's shaped who I am. I love passing on the traditions and the and the culture uh, to my son and have really embraced that, you know, particularly as I've gotten older. And professionally, being a Asian American lawyer, I think it's I'm very proud of to contribute to the diversity of the profession. Uh, the profession is not necessarily one that has a history of being diverse. Uh, and so uh, I've really enjoyed contributing to that diversity and being involved in APABA Indiana and collaborating uh, with my fellow Asian lawyers. Well, going back to your childhood that you mentioned, do you remember any ways that you would cope with some of those challenges you mentioned? You know, I think it just, you just kind of roll with it. Uh, gives you a little bit of grit, I guess, along the way. But there's, it, it just becomes a reality because, you know, there isn't really anybody, uh, certainly in the community that I grew up in, there weren't really a lot of people around that looked like me. But then on the flip side, because I'm half Chinese, um, you know, there were many times when I would be seem like the only Caucasian person in the room because there were so many Chinese people around me too. And so you sort of just learn to develop a little bit of a thicker skin. And if people ask questions, you're proud of your heritage and you, you answer matter-of-factly. And, uh, and I think, you know, many people who are of, of diverse backgrounds who might find themselves being the only person in the room that looks like them are used to answering those questions and, and really learning to educate the people around them about who they are and what, what their heritage is. Is that a difficult thing to balance? Like you feel the responsibility to educate people, but you're, you're just a person existing. And why do you have to be the one to educate people on your existence? Well, I think I don't carry it as a mantle as much like that as you just sort of you go about your day-to-day -day life and you lead by example and you you convey messages just by how you conduct yourself and how and how you're living and so and uh, I think even Dr. Koromatz you kind of talked about um, you know her father was such an impressive civil rights icon and yet he was just trying to do the right thing and and living you know life as you know as he thought it should be lived and you know you don't necessarily have to feel like you're you're being a civil rights icon to still 
convey a strong message to your community and the people around you of the importance of your heritage and, and what makes you unique and how you contribute to the community. Now, with your Chinese heritage, is that something you were able to learn just firsthand through family? Or, or did you ever like do any kind of that that research, uh, anything like like 23andMe or those, those genetic testing sites? Uh, no. Uh, I mean, certainly uh, there wasn't any doubt that, uh, that I had Chinese family and my mother was from Hong Kong. And uh, and so, you know, you learn growing up, you know, a lot of it is about the food and the traditions and the different ways in which we celebrate uh, different things, different events in the family. And, and so you just, you learn that really just by osmosis growing up. I've probably done a lot more reading about it as I have a eight-year-old son and he has lots of questions about it. And sometimes I don't know the answer because I just grew up doing certain things. And so... Um, you know, reading a little bit more about Chinese New Year or Lunar New Year and and talking to him about that. And so I've done a little more reading about some of the traditions as an adult. Um, but when you're a child, it's just, you just experience those naturally. You, you kind of hit on this already, but I, I was wondering what that identity means to you professionally as an attorney. You know, it's... It, I alluded to this earlier. Uh, the legal profession has not historically been a very diverse profession, uh, and certainly not in Indiana. I don't know that I necessarily associate myself being a lawyer or connect it necessarily to my Asian heritage, uh, but I am proud to be uh, an Asian American uh, who is a lawyer. Um, we don't run into each other very often. Uh, in certainly in my day-to-day -day practice. And so I think that's why I enjoy the APABA Indiana camaraderie and network is because it does create an opportunity to connect with other Asian American lawyers uh, in a setting that I wouldn't otherwise necessarily connect with them in my day-to-day -day work because there are fewer of us and we're kind of scattered about. Uh, and so that, that sort of sense of community and camaraderie is, is valuable to me. Now, whether you necessarily want it or not, does it ever occur to you that there are younger attorneys or law school students who who might see you maybe just in passing and it's like, hey, I can I can see myself in her. Does that ever occur to you? Yeah, I think so. I think both as an Asian American and a woman, I think too. Uh, I think both of those things certainly, you know, whether intentional or not, you're you're being a role model and uh, and when you're spending time with law students or you're spending time with, you know, the summer clerks that come through your firm or, you know, even the young associates that, that come through your firm, uh, yes, certainly I recognize that I can be a positive influence and whether that's just being a role model or uh, a more active mentor. Uh, I think those, both of those things are important. So obviously, anti-Asian hate crimes has been a big topic nationally for the last few years. And I just saw FBI data that showed anti-Asian hate crimes increased by 167% from 2020 to 2021. And I'm wondering, as an attorney, how do you see the legal community's role in combating that? Well, it's interesting uh, and kind of an ironic question because I think the United States legal system has a long history of fostering uh, Asian discrimination with cases like Fred Korematsu's case and the Chinese Exclusion Act and, and some of the other court cases that have had an impact on Asians 
throughout our history, but you know, the legal community can have a direct impact in terms of, you know, for example, the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of Indiana just charged the woman in Bloomington, Indiana, with a hate crime associated with the the stabbing of the eight year eighteen year old student at IU. So those are ways in which the legal community can have a literal direct impact on uh, those types of things. Many organizations, including uh, NAPABA, which is the National Organization of Asian American and Pacific Islander Attorneys, has a lot of legal resources and toolkits, particularly for victims of hate crimes or what you might call bias incidences, where it's not really a crime, but it may be a bias incident in terms of, you know, somebody hurling racial slurs. Uh, It doesn't rise to the level of violence, but it's an incident in and of itself. But having those tools, having those legal resources uh, is another way that lawyers can be involved sort of as a victim advocate or in, in education and training of the communities in which they live. But really beyond our role as lawyers, as human beings and good citizens, we can do a number of things. We can educate ourselves on, you know, the different communities and the experiences that they're facing. Uh, We can be more aware of the types of discrimination uh, that they're facing. We can speak up if we see something. One of the biggest challenges of any type of hate crime, but uh, particularly in the anti-Asian space, is that these events often go underreported. Uh, and so unless you report them, there's not an awareness of, uh, of an issue. And so, you know, speaking up or encouraging people to report those instances is important. And, you know, voting, making sure you have good leaders uh, in your communities that will uh, be sure to protect uh, the more, more vulnerable populations. You made a good point earlier about how the legal community historically has been on the wrong side of these types of issues. And I'm wondering, do you ever think about the legal community's role in still kind of legitimizing itself and saying, you know, we are fighting the good fight now, or we are on the wrong, or excuse me, we are on the right side of this now? Is, is that something you ever think about? Well, I think it's something that we just can't be complacent about. Uh, I mean, I think there are bad decisions on the books, and yet there's also uh, times when you know those issues get revisited or overturned. Uh, and so, you, I think you can't be complacent. Uh, but I also think we need to be aware as as lawyers or as legislatures that you know sometimes we can we can institutionalize these types of issues, whether it's um, inadvertently or, uh, or intentionally. And so um, recognizing that that you know it's it's uh, not just um, somebody on the street that, that may be doing something uh, wrong. It could also be happening um, at a at a higher level of of society as well. Now, you mentioned the legal community is not very diverse. Do you see anti-Asian racism as a problem within the legal community ever? You know, I personally haven't experienced it, but I can't speak, uh, obviously, for everyone. I am blessed to work in a firm that promotes diversity and and inclusion, and and many of our law firms do recognize that as an important issue, and, and you see that top of mind. I think it's also top of mind really for a lot of our law students uh, and younger associates. And it's uh, it, it's an important topic that I see discussed a lot. And 
Uh, I'm hoping that that, that things are improving, um, but I can't speak for everybody's experience. I know what we just covered can, you know, those can be difficult things to talk about, but to bring it back to this being Asian slash Pacific American Heritage Month, isn't that part of why this month is important, uh, giving you the time and, and space to sort of celebrate and reflect as you see fit? Yeah, and I, I think I want to emphasize, you know, Asian as a racial category is really just such a broad umbrella, and it covers many different ethnicities, um, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Thai, Filipino, Cambodian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi. I mean, you could kind of go on and on and on. And there are a lot of different religions encompassed in those cultures as well, Islam, Hinduism, Sikhism. And so the the term Asian is just a very broad category. And so I think sometimes when people think of um, Asian Americans or, or celebrating this month, they automatically assume uh, we're just talking about, you know, Chinese and Japanese or um, or Koreans. And, and really, um, I don't want to overlook Southeast Asia and uh, the Indian subcontinent as well. And I think that's also important, too, because Southeast Asians uh, and people from the Indian subcontinent also experience anti-Asian discrimination uh, and bias uh, and racism. And so I don't want to overlook those issues as well. But yes, AAPI Heritage Month is a month uh, that we don't just celebrate ourselves, but we're using it as an opportunity to educate other people about our various cultures and traditions. And uh, I think Dr. Korematsu said during her remarks at the event, ignorance and fear drives a lot of of bias and discrimination and racism be, uh, of things that people don't know about. They don't know anybody that might be Asian or they've never been around um, Asian cultures before. And so, you know, educating people on cultures and yes, there are many differences, but, you know, there are a lot of similarities too. And, and hoping that, you know, through that discourse, we can really educate people on the other ethnicities and cultures in our community. Uh, and, you know, we want that to be a, a year-round experience, but AAPI Month creates a great platform to really focus attention on it. So for anybody who wants to stay up to date with what's happening at the Asian Pacific American Bar Association, uh, how can they do that? Uh, well, we have a website, uh, www.apaba-in.org. So that's apaba-in.org. And uh, we have a number of events throughout the year. Uh, we have an annual Lunar New Year CLE legal education event. Uh, and um, so please stay tuned. Reach out to us and get on our mailing list for updates on events and activities. Um, the National Association, also uh, www.napaba.org, uh, is the national organization of which Indiana is an affiliate. And we're very excited, actually, to be hosting the national convention in Indianapolis on November 9 through 12 of later this year. All right. Well, that'll do it for this week's extended interview. Thank you again for joining me, Libby. Thanks for having me, Tyler. As always, to hear our previous interviews, visit theindianalawyer.com or find us on your favorite podcast app. We'll talk to you next time.